three reasons. Mm-hmm. Safer. Who wouldn't want a safer operation? Less operating. So sometimes you will need to have a, a less of an operation, maybe less um, back lipo, maybe a tummy tuck instead of a, a body lift. Third reason, better result. So safer, less surgery, better result. They're my three reasons. Hey Refam, my name's Kate and welcome back to Keeping It Real, the podcast with all the answers. Today, we're unpacking your frequently asked questions to help demystify the whole palaver of surgery. From what happens if you gain weight post-op to why you need drains after surgery and even which dietary supplements you should stop taking before you go under the knife. We're going back to basics and leaving no stone unturned. Okay, so today we're going to go through just some surgery FAQs. Um, you guys probably get some similar questions coming through. And, you know, for people coming to have surgery, it's often the first time they've had a, a really big surgery. It might be the last time they have it. It's, you know, a very transformative experience. They might not have ever stepped foot in a hospital before. You know, there's all of it can be very daunting and scary and just not kind of knowing what's waiting on the other side. So we're going to help demystify the other side. Go for it. All righties. Um, Alternate questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it rapid fire? Poss- Are we doing rapid evens, fire? Rapid fire. Might have to be judging by how long this list is. All right. When can I have a shower after surgery? The day after surgery for pretty much every procedure that we do. Um, and for all the rest, the day of surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we use dressings that people can shower over. We want you to uh, feel comfortable and uh, be happy and clean in your skin after your surgery. But also, we're living in Melbourne. The water is clean. There's no risk if, if a wound gets wet. Um, it's not going to fall apart. It's not going to suddenly get infected. And as Kim says, actually having it clean is beneficial. So Yeah, and uh, you're going to be sitting there with like blood from the surgery across yeah. your skin and stuff. So we wash we wash that off before yeah. the the dressing's gone. <laughs> it, it's a bit of a myth not to shower or get the wounds wet. Um, when can I go on a plane? It, it's not so much about going on the plane. It's more about where you're going. So, obviously, first couple of days after an operation, you want to get on a plane. After that, it depends where you're going. If you're going to if you if you've had a relatively minor procedure and you're going to Sydney, where both of us have contacts and we can look after you if you've got any questions and you're an hour away. You can go straight away. If you're going uh, hiking in the Himalayas, that's a different kettle of fish. So it's like one week. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I don't know if that was a joke or not. <laughs> no, so yeah. you, know, that, that would, you want to go on a proper holiday at, at least eight weeks, probably after an mm-hmm. operation, because you just want to be well and truly healed. Like yeah. recovery from surgery is not a holiday. Sidebar, I think that's <laughs> conservative. I mean, it depends the operation, but no, but like to plan a holiday to like Bali or somewhere tropical, and I, I just think, yeah, like, if you've got any little wound issue, you just you're better to be conservative because, you, in my view, you want to do a, an operation once, heal properly from it, and then yeah. go about your life after that. Can I have surgery if I live interstate? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Lots of people have surgery from interstate. Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, we, we have a lot of patients that actually travel 
um, to see us to have their surgery. Um, we've got really good systems in place in terms of having your consultation online or um, video before um, your surgery. So it's not like you have to fly and have a consultation and then book your surgery at another time. So um, we can upload your photos, have a really um, very, very similar consultation to uh, as if you were in the office. Um, it does depend a little bit on what procedure we still may want to see you to examine you before your surgery, um, but often that can be done in a couple of days beforehand. And so if people are travelling interstate, obviously we've talked about duration for getting um, – getting on a plane after within Australia, but if they're staying nearby, how kind of long should they look at staying in Australia for like post, I mean in Melbourne for like post-op appointments? Uh, it would be one one to two weeks depending on the procedure. Um, if it was a tummy tuck or body lift, probably two weeks. Um, but if it was breast surgery, uh, around the one, one to two week mark. Uh, how long do you stay in hospital after surgery? Good question. It depends on the procedure. So some things we do are day surgery, so breast augmentation would be day surgery. Breast reduction is one night, uh, tummy tuck two night, body lift three nights. A little bit of that is historic. I've certainly had some patients who go home after two nights. Uh, we're f- fairly flexible on decreasing it. My, I had this discussion with a patient today um, and uh, who is actually diabetic um, and she wants to have a, a procedure. And I said, honestly, you're better off going home as a day case because you manage your sugars very, very accurately and you'll probably be more comfortable handling that on your own. Mm-hmm. And so you go home and you're in charge. If you're in the hospital, then there'll be hospital <laughs> protocols and things like that. So um, I'm always – my uh, – I mean, I – started practice as an intern and patients used to stay in hospital for a week after a skin graft or varicose vein surgery and things are very much moved towards uh, early discharge which i think is a positive um, we work with a group called pure you uh, which are, which is a concierge service which can help you when you're you when you transfer to home um, but i think people back in their own environment are better they're they mobilise more and I think getting back to normal life is is a really important part of recovery. Yeah, I was going to say, I've noticed that recently as well with the lower body lift, that the, the adding the back part to the tummy tuck, I, I think a lot of those patients are actually pretty pretty good to go after two nights. Mm. Um, it doesn't seem to you know necessarily add the extra night of stay. So, um, Is it kind of put as extra night just in case because it's like a bigger surgery or...? Yeah, I think, and I think they're under anaesthetic for a bit longer, but generally all that's worn off within the first day. So, um, again, a, a bit of that historical. But we're certainly um, very proactive about getting patients up out of bed and, as we've already said, showered the next day, even when in hospital and getting moving, and that's only got to be good for you. Gotcha. On the note of people being in their own environment, how do people sleep? Like what's a good position? Uh, there's a lot of discussion about this in the in the Regals group and uh, none of it comes from us. Any position that is comfortable is fine. You generally won't do any damage uh, when you're sleeping. So you know, a lot of people like to sit in higher recliners and, and sleep in them. That's fine if that's comfortable, but uh, you, can, um, you can lie on your side, you can lie on your back and have some pillows under your knees. 
for most of the surgery we do, probably lying on your front is not advisable, but I mean, let's face it, I mean, anybody who lies on their front is probably a psychopath anyway. I lie on my front. Me too. <laughs> really? I'm a, I, I like my back. I'm trying to train myself to sleep on my back. Yeah, it's, it's, it is actually supposed to be very bad for your back to lie on your tummy. I cannot. There's no way I could ever sleep on my front. <laughs> uh, outnumbered though, <laughs> right now. At the I know, I'm just so, so who's the psychopath? <laughs> exactly. But J-Lo says she looks the way she does because she doesn't sleep on her face. So. Oh, well, there, there you go. go. Um, loads of pillows would be my advice. Um, and it's it's a total myth, particularly with breast surgery, that you have to sleep sitting upright. Um, oh, yeah! Like so many patients will come in at two weeks, never been told that by us. Be like, when do I? Uh, when can I lie down in my bed? Uh, like from the first day of your operation. Oh, um, yeah. myth yeah, buster. It's busted. Myth busted. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it comes from the Bust. hospitals. Many times it comes from um, online forum advice. Gotcha. Listen, listen to our advice. Yeah. Other people on the note of sleeping sitting up when can i stand up straight uh, when it feels comfortable too um some patients after tummy tuck come in they're still hunched over at three four weeks but some at one week are close to upright so and to specify just when people ask this question this is because they're getting a tummy tuck they're getting a lot of skin cut out so there's existing skin stretched further so tight very, very tight. So they You want it tight. Yeah. <laughs> and so like that will kind of loosen gradually and you'll kind of come back up to Actually I've got, I've got an interesting story about this one. So patient operated on towards the end of last year, uh, fit, healthy mum and had a tummy tuck and breast surgery. And around six weeks she came in, she was still hunched over. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. But I think she, um, my feeling was that she was just being a little bit slow to get going. Mm-hmm. And I sent her along to our uh, PT, Penny Jew, who's going to uh, feature in an upcoming podcast, uh, who is great if anyone is interested. But um, I sent her along to see Penny and Penny got her doing a few exercises and I saw her two weeks later, the change in her posture mm-hmm. and her result was extraordinary. It, it, Interesting. It, it was like it was like someone who was had some sort of complication and I, like the surgery had gone wrong mm. to an outstanding result and a, a completely flat tummy. Oh, fascinating. So I think there's a bit of – I'm not saying to overdo things, but I think there is a little bit of hesitancy in, in, in not doing too much. Your body will limit you from doing too much, but it is important to get going. And yeah. I think as much harm is done by not moving uh, that is is done by doing too much. So I think it is important to get going you know, relatively early. Um, oh, okay then. When should I start exercising? <laughs> so would you be around... Well, gentle exercise, um, moving, going for a walk, that's from day one as well. So Mm -hmm. um, depending on the operation that you've had, um, tummy tuck, you're going to be walking around your hospital room on day one. Um, But for breast surgery, generally patients can um, mobilise very early 
like we don't want someone going out for a power walk, but um, moving is really, really important. And Richard already mentioned Penny. Um, for all of our patients, they can get a um, free consultation with her, and she's got programs that are suitable to be done from very early days after all the operations that we do. And it's not like, like yeah, she works in a gym and she's a PT, but it's not g- gym weight she's not workout. Like she's jumps. Yeah, exactly. It It's getting your body moving in a safe and comfortable way. And it's really important. Um, and uh, I had a discussion with a patient today as well who is booking in for breast reduction surgery and she had been watching YouTube videos, um, obviously not ours, um, mm. and was talking about having to be like a robot and have these robot arms and not moving her arms at all after surgery and I was like, no, that is abso- that's just so wrong because yeah. it's really important that you're not um, all tense and tightened up and, and I think that's like what Richard was saying, that people have that apprehension yeah. of moving at all and then it's a vicious circle that they actually end up everything ends up tighter, whereas yeah. if you just start to do sensible movement, um, normal gym, weights, Pilates, um, going for a run, all those things sort of look at doing, build up to those things from about the six-week mark. Gotcha. Um, okay, I think that's most of the oh, – when can I start having sex? I get that question a lot, and all I can say when I get asked is it's like walking, so – if it's comfortable, you can do it, but you don't want to start running too soon. So um, it's quite a common concern for patients. What an interesting metaphor <laughs> that we will not be going into any further. Um, okay, I think that's most of the when can I questions. Oh, and then when do I, when do I get feeling back post-surgery? Uh, it depends on what body part that would be. Um, the lower part of a tummy tuck, there's a patch that will – um, remain numb pretty much always and a lot of our um, female patients have had caesareans before and they would usually say oh yeah my skin's still a bit numb f- um, above where the caesarean scar is so um, tummy tuck often ends up kind of similar and it feels weird and like not your own body to start with and the whole tummy is quite numb to start with um, and then that recovers slowly over time and it can be many, many months. Um, and it just gets to the point, I think, for most people, they just get used to that little patch that's left of numbness. Why is it numb? Uh, um, good question. <laughs> so uh, as you mentioned before, the excess skin from the tummy tuck is cut out and mm-hmm. then the remainder of the skin is actually lifted up off the tummy muscles and then stretched and pulled down tight. So all the nerves that go from the deeper tissues up into that skin – um, either get divided or stretched and oh, nerves don't really like having anything done to them. Yeah. Um, a lot of them join back up and they they gradually recover, um, but some the furthest away from where you've lifted the skin up to, so that's the area that's closer to the scar. Mm-hmm. Um, some of they just don't make it there. Oh, that is so fascinating. Mm. And they're teeny tiny, like we can't – we generally don't even see them when we're operating, so it's not something that we can – be like, oh, okay, we damaged that. We can stitch it back together again. Yeah, yeah, That um, makes so much sense. Just Yeah, and, and breast surgery has similar sort of issues. So breast augmentation actually is from a smaller scale kind of similar. So where there's a small cut and then you're lifting up the breast tissue off the chest wall, um, some of those little nerves, uh, usually just above where that scar is, 
get damaged as well. And, mm-hmm. and usually that all comes back. It's very uncommon with the augmentation to have ongoing nipple issues. Um, but patients, when they're recovering, can sometimes have hyper, so increased sensitivity of their nipples. Um, mm-hmm. And often it's the air con walking into a room and like freezing <laughs> cold and be like, oh my God, like, <laughs> the daggers and the, the stabbing in the, in the nipples. Um, and then breast reduction, because the nipples are actually moved, um, mm-hmm. it, it's usually related to how low they are and how far you're having to move them, whether some patients end up with permanent numbness. Um, but what I actually find is that women that have really large breasts with very, very low nipples mm-hmm. often don't have any normal sensation in them anyway. So they oh. usually are like, as soon as they bring up, oh, you might lose some sensation on your nipples, they generally say, I don't have any feeling there anyway, so I don't really know, I won't notice any difference. Wow. Every time I talk to you guys, <laughs> more things get uncovered. Yeah. So if you imagine if your nipples are sitting at your, the, your belly button level, mm. they often don't. Oh, feel the that's same. Crazy. Well, it makes sense because it, it, it's like the same, same nerve, rationale. Yeah, and it's just been stretched and stretched and stretched yeah. and stretched, and also often the areola is stretched. Yeah, so you've still got the same nerve supplying that tissue which is stretched. Yeah, so relatively it's diminished. Yeah, like it's the exact same, same reasoning nerve. as the like tummy tuck reasoning. Yeah, it mm. just it happened naturally as opposed to yeah, being yeah, hacked yeah. Up. They've been stretched and fascinating. Um, okay, so these ones are probably more um, leading up to surgery. Are there any dietary supplements I should take before surgery? My favourite question. <laughs> so we get this a lot and we see it a lot in the, in the Regals group. Um, there are two things to do to get prepared for surgery. Don't smoke and be your ideal body weight. Everything else is makes marginal, if any, difference. Mm-hmm. So people talk about having – help me out here, but I think it's Collagen. pineapple pineapple juice. Do they, they, people say pineapple decreases swelling or bruising or something like that. People talk about <laughs> – Kim, Kim uh, gets different groups. I think they say pineapple to stop sneezing. No. Um, that's, a, that's a thing in the forums. Arnica, like all these sorts Collagen of – Collagen is a big one. What's arnica? Is that a weight loss thing? No, arnica is supposedly – Decrease uh, bruising. Decrease bruising, but no scientific you evidence. Can ta- you can rub oh. it on or take it by so, so do two things. Mm-hmm. Get your ideal body weight that we'll tell you when we see you at a consultation. Don't smoke. Everything else makes very, very little difference, if any difference at all. Okay. So I'll put the vitamin C tablets away. <laughs> um, it's not going to hurt you, but it's not going to suddenly make Well, you hang on. Hang on. Back that <laughs> off. It may hurt you. So there are a lot of supplements. Yeah, um, not vitamin C. Not, n- not, I don't know vitamin C. No, vitamin C isn't. My dad describes it as expensive wee because you can't yeah, take yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Your body can't absorb any. So there are a lot of supplements that people take that actually interfere with your blood clotting. So either make you bleed more or make you clot more. And they're both bad for surgery. So if anybody's on any supplements, my general advice is stop them 10 days before because they're probably not making any difference to start with and they may interfere with your surgical recovery and potentially cause a a complication. So something very, very common, garlic, who would think that would cause a problem, but that can interfere with clotting. 
So, and there's heaps of herbal heaps. herbal things. Lots that start with E. So, echinacea. echinacea. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Boom. There you go. Don't um, take it. And then also, obviously, that if people are taking them, to be very upfront with yeah. you guys or with the nurse or mm. whoever, and don't like. I think because if people are taking just herbal things, I think a lot of the time they think it yeah. doesn't matter, so they don't have to tell anybody. Yeah. yeah. But if they are, just be very, very honest about that. Mm. So. Yeah. And it's usually the opposite to what people may think. Like their regular medications, we would generally say, keep taking those. Like yeah. um, the pill and um, hormone replacement are ones that we would generally say because they do increase clotting risk as well. Stop those ten days before. But like your b- blood pressure tablets, um, your uh, mental health tablets, all the other medications that you're on, um, other than blood thinning things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would be. We want to know what they are so we can double check. But yeah. um, generally we'd be encouraging people to stay on your normal medications um, but stop all the other non-prescribed things. When people are taking like warfarin for whatever, like, you know, that's a part of their regular medication, do they have to stop that before they have surgery? Not a common situation for us. Oh, not a lot of our oh, patients of are on warfarin. I'm coming from a dermatology perspective. <laughs> sure. there. How, how, however, it depends on the procedure and it depends – on what the indication for the warfarin is. So uh, traditionally some people were on warfarin and it was a bit of a soft reason to be on it and they probably didn't need to be on it. You can go off it for that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people on warfarin for something really serious like stopping them have a heart attack or stroke. Yeah. So we don't want patients to have a heart attack or stroke. Yeah. And personally I'd prefer a slight increased risk of bleeding that I can treat and control and is not life-threatening than someone having a stroke. Yeah. And having some permanent disability, so it's really a case by case scenario. When we're not often in the situation, but certainly when we were doing skin cancer work, my advice was always just to stay on it because the bleeding risk was low, and even a small increased risk of heart heart attack or stroke is pretty significant. Gotcha. And the only patients that I can think of that have been on blood thinners recently are on all the newer ones which you actually can't monitor or test for and uh-huh. um, they've been on them for uh, DVT or PE prophylaxis yeah. which we definitely want to know about because it's really relevant around the time of surgery and so we'd often transfer them across to be on injections which you can control a little bit more around that mm-hmm. time of surgery um, but we would work with the anaesthetist and haematologist regarding mm-hmm. Those sort of treatments. So honesty is a very big takeaway from there. Best uh, policy. Um, I haven't had anesthetic before, and I'm afraid of that part more than the surgery. I had that today. Patient patient was scared of, and this is not uncommon. Not uncommon at all. Patients are scared of not waking up or dying during the anesthetic, which kind of are the same thing. Why? <laughs> Um, why is that? Like I've never thought to be yeah, scared of it. I, I think it's the fear of the unknown. But, I mean, with modern anaesthetics, the type of surgery we're doing, the anaesthetists we're working with, that's not going to happen. Like point blank, that will not happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, it's just based on fear. It's not like there hasn't been... Uh, look, I think it's, you know, a little bit of... I'm trying to start. <laughs> TV. Oh, you're not scared? Let's get scared. <laughs> yeah. Grey's Anatomy, ER, yeah. all those kind of okay, drama, gotcha. drama. Yeah, TV I think shows. a little bit of it comes yeah. from sort of uh, pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 
anesthetics are, are, are so incredibly safe. Everything's being monitored. Uh, their oxygen level, their blood pressure, their their pulse, their breathing rate, everything is being monitored, and and also the patients we're dealing with are fit and healthy. So, I, I it's just not a thing. And and the kind of the commonest thing, which is unbelievably rare, um, would be an allergy to one of the medications and um, if something's going to happen to you it's a, it's a safe place for that because everyone in the operating theatre room is there to look after you as they're not the anaesthetist is not looking after a bunch of operating rooms they're looking after one one patient at a time um, as Rich said lots of monitoring and so as soon as anything looks like there's any issues that it's very obvious and onto it straight away. Uh, what's the best hospital? The common queue. Um, it's it's funny. I often I do actually get asked that a, um, quite a bit. Like, what hospitals do you operate at? Um, which one should I go to? Because which one is the best? Um, I I wouldn't be operating at um, hospitals that I don't uh, think are safe so um, any of the hospitals that either of us work at we are more than happy to take any of our patients to. Um, we don't operate here in the rooms um, in Turak. I got asked that question today actually like do you, do you do surgery here? So no we would do very minor local anaesthetic procedures in the office but um, we don't run a hospital, so um, we leave good. It. She was looking out for the red flag. She knows she's meant to look exactly. out for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> ah. um, yeah, they're all they're all accredited. Um, they've all got high standards. Um, okay, why do I need to get to a target weight? My favorite question. Keep saying that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you I tell me at the end what's your favorite. I'll go edit out all the other ones. You know what? I just love questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two reasons. Three reasons. Oh, uh, there must be a fourth. No, no. Okay, three reasons. Mm-hmm. Safer. Who wouldn't want a safer operation? Less operating. So sometimes you will need to have a, a less of an operation, maybe less um, back lipo, maybe a tummy tuck instead of a, a body lift. Third reason, better result. So safer, less surgery, better result. They're my three reasons. I actually went through it with a patient today. Yeah. Who Her BMI wasn't in the ideal range. And BMI is not, you know, a be-all and end-all, but it's a good, very, very good guide. And I, and I think someone else had offered to do her surgery and I said, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, you need more surgery than what you otherwise would. You're not going to get a great result. And you've got higher risk of wound infection, fat necrosis, um, anaesthetic risks and a whole host of other things. And I, I said, why, why would you choose that? And also just maybe, and most importantly for the patient, the results are just far and above better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I have had a handful of people that have a consult and say, look, you know, you do need to lose that 5 to 10 kilos. They come in for their surgery having put on that and then expecting um, the same outcome as someone else that is at their target weight. And, um, yeah, the expectation management then is very, very tricky. Um, and, you know, outco- outcomes are far and away worse. Yeah. Um, and, and something specific to abdominoplasty, tummy tuck, is that um, 
the excess fat can be intra-abdominal. Mm. So we, you know, I've had patients say, oh, can't you just do extra lipo for me? No, like, no, 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 and no, because that's fat that's around your organs and we can't access that. And so if you have a tummy tuck, when you've got extra fat in those areas, your stomach will still be round. Um, and so, again, outcomes and expectation, people come in and go, why am I still bloated? It's because that's the fat that's around your organs that you need to lose that we can't we can't deal to. The main area where I find that's an issue is the upper abdomen. So exactly what Kim is saying, that's intra-abdominal. So that's not addressed. So patients who don't lose their weight often still have some fullness in their upper abdomen. The other two points I'll make is, and it's a common question, what happens if I lose more weight? Well, if you're not at your ideal weight when we do your surgery and then you lose weight, you'll end up with more loose skin um, and then it's kind of defeat the purpose of the operation. Um, The other tip for everyone is your height minus 100 plus 5 is your goal weight. Easy calculation. Don't worry about your BMI. Um, take 100 off your height, add 5. That's roughly where I want you to be before surgery. Um, okay, so these ones are a bit more post-op. What is swell hell and when does it stop? Um, it's particularly referencing to the lower abdomen after abdominoplasty, but sometimes patients do describe it after a breast reduction sort of on the sides but much more so um, after abdominoplasty Um, we talked before about lifting all that skin up and it um, disconnects the nerves it also disconnects the lymphatics and the blood supply that goes down (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you've you've obviously got to cut from hip to hip and so some of that um, blood supply and lymphatic drainage from your abdominal skin would go down into the groins normally. So it's got to go up to get out of that um, tissue. So um, it is then that some of that skin swells up as people are up and about during the day. So um, commonly I'll ask patients that are describing this swell hell, like is it worse at the end of the day? Yeah, 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 it's terrible like at the end of the day, but I wake Mm -hmm. up in the morning and it's much, much better. So it's just that that fluid is finding, it's got to find a new way out of that skin Mm -hmm. and for some patients it's a week or two weeks and for some patients it's six months nine months um the worst of it is generally in the first few weeks yeah um the other swelling in an abdomen is um seroma so that's completely different that's where Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually kind of decrease the next morning so the um that's the fluid collecting under that would have been coming into your drain tubes whilst you're in hospital um, and that's collecting under the skin. So, and generally, that would be increasing slowly over days, um, mm-hmm. not going up and down. And that's something that we need to see you uh, to yeah. address in the rooms, which is pretty straightforward. It's a nuisance rather than a complication. I've got it's a bit of describe Richard a nuisance, a complication, a nuisance rather than a complication. <laughs> I've got a bit of a theory. I've got a bit of a theory on swell L. So. There is a fluctuation in your weight through a day. So if you weigh yourself in the morning and weigh yourself in the uh, evening, which only a crazy person like me would do, um, there's often 500 grams to a kilo difference. And that's just fluid that you accumulate through the day uh, 
who knows why. And I think that post-op patients are experiencing some of that, but because they're used to sort of having an overhang and now they've got a flat tummy, they notice that way more. So they're used to having a lot of loose skin, they're used to having an overhang, and they don't notice that so much um, before their surgery. After their surgery, where everything's flat, and in the morning everything looks amazing, and by the end of the day, you know, fluid shifts and whatever it is, there's more fluid accumulated in your tissues, and so they notice uh, this, what, what they call swell hell. Uh, certainly some of it is because of surgery, but some of it is just a natural fluctuation that you're just noticing probably more than what you did when you had loose skin. You spoke about uh, drainage, seroma. Um, so I think drain pipes is a very common question. What, what are they? Why do you need them? Do they hurt? Because someone says they're worse than surgery. Um, drain tubes are a necessary part of um, quite a few of the surgeries that we do. And um, again, when we lift up the skin of your abdomen, there are two big raw surfaces that have to stick back together. Um, and the analogy I like to use is imagine if you've grazed yourself and or had a small cut that it's weepy for a few days before it gets a scab on it so imagine that little weepy wound on two whole surfaces of your whole abdomen so all the raw muscle area um, and then the skin surface so um, it's going to ooze a bit of fluid which is normal before it seals off and then it sticks back down for want of a better description so the drainage tubes are used to collect any of that extra fluid and take that away while the tissues then can stick back together um, and it's, it's super variable and I think it's, it's really hard to predict patients that are going to have high volume drain output. Um, I certainly think um, someone that's more overweight, someone that's had more liposuction, um, someone that's had more extensive surgery, so a lower body lift rather than an abdominoplasty, but sometimes it's just totally and utterly unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, the drain tubes are there. They play an important role in taking away the extra fluid because if they weren't there, that fluid is just collecting on the inside and is going to make you swell even more than hell um, and having to at some point drain that off. Um, small amounts of fluid, your body will, will generally drain away pretty quickly. Um, I think Richard uses drain tubes routinely in breast reduction still. I probably... Uh, probably one in 20 patients I'd use them. Um, I have had some patients that have had that fluid collecting out under the armpit and have to have it drained off in the rooms. Um, and I don't think either of us would routinely use drain tubes for breast augmentation. Yeah. Um, I think I probably once or twice have when I was like, this patient's a bit more bleedy rather than that for collecting the fluid. Yeah. Um, so if... If the volumes in the drain tube is less than about 30 mils a day, we're happy to take them out. Um, if it's higher than that, then they're much better in. Because if you imagine 30, 40, 50 mils or more a day, two, three days, it's 100 mils. Um, and <laughs> Richard's trying to do some mat- maths and catch me out. Um, and so that's going to build up really quickly and be uncomfortable and have uh, like a waterbed in your tummy. And you'll be calling us and saying, hey... Um, so those patients that are otherwise ready to go home, um, we would send you home with a drain tube. They're a nuisance more than anything. Um, and I, I've personally never had a drain tube in myself, but I've taken out a whole heap. And if it's done carefully and 
distracting the patient a little bit. I, I really don't think it's worse than having the surgery. Um, I think, again, it's a myth busted and um, yeah. urban myth that they're the worst thing in the world. Um, for those patients that do have them for two or three weeks, then, you know, sure, they they start to get a bit more of a nuisance, um, more just carrying, having to carry them around. But um, they're still playing a really, really important role. You just seen a waterbed on your stomach was an awful imagery, which I think definitely it, makes it. Them it worthy. does exactly describe <laughs> yeah. what it looks like. So yeah, patients can like belot or you know poke their tummy and be like, so yeah. you can see the water rippling underneath. Yuck! I think the other thing is you, you will read about different techniques uh, like quilting sutures, so to stitch down the flap onto the muscle wall, so to close off the dead space and stop the fluid reaccumulating. There are different glues that people people that are also available um, to stick the two surfaces down. I can assure you, we have tried all of those techniques, and they either don't work or they compromise the end result. And for the sake of having a drain for either a couple of days or at maximum a couple of weeks, um, it, it uh, you, you hear you will hear people uh, marketing that they drain-free abdominoplasty, and they're often using one of these other techniques because you can't stop the fluid, um, but all of those techniques have their drawbacks and over many, many years I've found just using a drain tube is the best and easiest solution. Do you recommend vitamin E for scars? No. I think that I mean that's a really common one that people think. I don't know where that's come from, but definitely no scientific evidence. Uh, we use uh, silicon tape and silicon gel um, and micropore tape in the early phases. Um, there's evidence around all of those things, um, but no evidence around vitamin E. People like using it, and yeah, that's fine. It won't. And cause I think it's help. good in that it's massaging your scars. That's good. And it's like definitely if that's if that's the kind of lubricant you need to use to do it. But otherwise, we have a very, very good dermal clinician that you can come and see for laser, LED. And that roller. Yeah. yeah. How good's the roller? The roller's good. Because I think a lot of people don't like touching their scars to massage it. And so we've got um, little Dalmatian crystal rollers. Yeah. No, I think that's a great tool. I think bio-oils in that same (laughs) category with the vitamin E as well. You would get asked one of those those two. And and sure, if it means that you're actually – paying attention to your scars and massaging something on it and doing something um, unlikely to cause harm. Um, then when people come in and they say, what is this lump? Is this normal? One, yeah, one of my favourite questions, is this normal? I mean, there's such a wide variety of what is normal. So to the point that there is actually no normal. So you will feel different lumps, you'll have different uh, pains, uh, you'll do different movements that will cause discomfort. It's all within the range of what is normal. Um, so those sort of things are not uncommon. Um, uh, they're often, it's not just in the one side that people have noticed. They might actually, when I examine them, they may I may actually find it in different areas. It's just the tissues settling down. It might be an area that I've done some liposuction. There's a bit more swelling in that area. Um, but it's it's un, uncommon for it to be anything significant. But as always, uh, come in and let us check it out. Um, I know we talked about weight loss and gain before surgery, but what about after surgery? What happens if people lose or gain weight in that? 
Um, I had a patient who's probably asked me at least five times um, on the day of her surgery and subsequently um, if I lose more weight. So she is, is my breast reduction going to be compromised? She's not significantly overweight. Um, she'd put on a few kilos and, and by that I mean maybe three, I think, before her surgery and um, she's super obsessed and stressed about it. Um, sure, if you're going to lose 20 kilos after your surgery or gain that much for um, that matter, absolutely um, your result's going to be compromised. Um, up or down a couple of kilos because that's over your entire body. It's not like you're going to go up two kilos and it's two kilos is going to go on your breast or your tummy, um, then it's going to be in proportion. Um, If you've had liposuction, the way we do liposuction, you're not having every single fat cell removed from that area. It's um, generally putting those areas where the fat's out of proportion to other areas, evening you all up. So if you do gain weight, it's going to be more evenly over your body um, and lose weight, it's going to be evenly over your body. But as, as Richard said um, before, uh, get your ideal weight before your surgery, um, maintain it at that and um, you know, you're not going to compromise your results uh, before or afterwards. So I'm going to ask one more question. When can I go without my garments or bra after surgery? Garments, usually two to three weeks, just depends on how things are going. But some people like to keep wearing them for longer I think my world record is maybe six months. Uh, but certainly by two or three weeks, you can certainly start weaning off it. Bra, it's it's just no underwire for six weeks just because that's where the, generally the scar is and so you don't want an underwire rubbing on the scar. Um, but And we provide you with a, a bra, a recovery bra, bra but uh, you, can, you could alternate that with a sports bra that doesn't have an underwire and that's for six weeks. If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at Replastic Surgery. That's all for today, and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.